Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Well, uncertainty is always a part of life, isn't it? Unknowns about today, unknowns about tomorrow. I mean, the things that we think we kind of can, can solve are things that have happened in the past, and yet even sometimes the things that have happened to us shape within us the way we think and the way we envision the world and the perspective that we have, and sometimes we're even uncertain about those things that have already happened and, and how they've shaped us and influenced us. And, and this is true whether we're talking about today, 2021, June 6th, you know, summer hasn't even begun, but it feels like it, or if you go back thousands of years you know, you go all the way back to the early parts of, of history recorded in the book of Exodus. Today, I want to kind of jump back there and, and kind of hit hot spots throughout the text of Scripture, going, moving all the way up into the book of Revelation as we continue, continue this series in uncertain times. And that should say part three. Um, I don't know uh, if, uh, do we have, yeah, thanks Gretchen. So she'll uh, load up those slides. Um, so yeah, so this is part three of our un, In Uncertain Times uh, uh, series. Um, back in the book of Exodus, we, we meet this group of people known as the nation of Israel, uh, the Hebrew children. And at this point, they are living in Egypt, and they're slaves. Imagine being a slave. You don't have any right to decisions for yourself, not what time you wake up, not what time you go to bed, not what time you get home from work, not how much time you get to spend with your kids, not even when your kids start to work. when they're working alongside you in the field doing what it is that you're doing, it wouldn't be a good life as a slave, especially in the ancient world, especially if you were an Israelite and your slave master was the dreaded Pharaoh of Egypt. He was hostile. Your whole life, someone else told you what to do, what to wear, where to live, when you got up, how long you worked, when you went to bed, what you did for a career, and also you would just barely scrape by and have just enough to survive today. There would be no provision for you tomorrow. If you worked for Pharaoh, then, then your spouse worked for Pharaoh. Then three of your four kids worked for Pharaoh from the point they were seven years old. And if you had another child that was six, this was their last year until they would start working for Pharaoh next year. If you're Hebrew and, and you're, uh, you're a, a slave in Egypt, you've spent your whole childhood growing up hearing about what life was like before Egypt, the good old days of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even Joseph, whose leadership here in Egypt actually saved your entire people and saved the nation of Egypt, saved the known world because of the vision that God had given him, the the ability to interpret the vision that had been given to the Pharaoh. And yet while you're living in Egypt today as a slave, after centuries of slavery, (coughs) even though your ancestors first came escaping famine, looking for refuge in uncertain times, But after a few generations, the Pharaoh who rose to power chose to see an incredible workforce in a nation of people, a rapidly growing number of people that were fruitful and multiplying, the Hebrew people. If you were there, you would have heard about these guarantees that God had made in the past, in uncertain times for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, where God claimed to be holy and powerful, and he was, he was faithful, and he mentioned giving to his chosen people a promised land, a new land flowing with milk and honey, a place without slavery, a place of freedom, a place without oppression. But if you were there from where you sat, you might not see these promises. More like these are high, lofty dreams birthed from a people just longing to escape from tyranny. Maybe you start to wonder 
After centuries of slavery, did God really say that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Was that really his promise? Did somebody misread it? Maybe somebody got something wrong in the passing down of these stories about a divine promise from God. Maybe he isn't coming. Maybe he doesn't care. And then this guy Moses shows up. A Jew raised in the home of Pharaoh, a guy that that says he was born Jewish, but man, he sure looks Egyptian. And he's starting to claim that God has sent him as the one that will usher in this promise, this new identity. And sure enough, eventually Moses does. In miraculous form, the Pharaoh, the man that the Egyptians were told to worship as a god, is backed into a corner by the one true God and releases and frees the entire slave force of Egypt, the Israelites. Imagining witnessing this event in history, imagine being present as you, your family, your neighbors, everybody is packing up in Egypt and you're getting ready to leave this place of bondage and intimidation. Now there's still a lot of uncertainty about the future because in Egypt you know how your your needs were being met. You were a part of working the ground, you were a part of working with the livestock, you knew people that took care of harvesting and and, and, and the grains and saving the meats and drying them out and preparing your meals day in and day out, they were slaves as well. You knew where the sustenance was coming from. Now, all of a sudden, you're stepping out in faith. As you leave, it's a step of faith that Moses is not wrong, that God, who, is, who has done these 10 plagues, is actually going to deliver you in the future. He's going to provide for what you need. This is the event known as the Exodus, and we could kind of think sometimes people just joyfully leave Egypt, but what they're leaving is they're entering into incredible uncertainty. It's a massive step of faith to believe That for these million people, God is going to provide for their daily needs. Because there's no land to work. There's no field waiting. There's no barn with livestock waiting. What God the Father was doing was he was trying to establish the groundwork of what it meant to follow him. Of who he is. That he's good. That he's holy. That he is sovereign. That he has power they can't begin to fathom. That he is Lord of everything. And on that day, when the slaves of Egypt walk out of the country as free men and women, on that day, God proves who he is. God the Father was sowing seeds that his son Jesus would one day stand in, stand upon in the future, revealing that his nature, God's nature is a redeemer, a a rescuer, a reconciler. And, And at heart, he's an abolitionist who wants to set us free from human slavery, but more than that, from spiritual slavery and bondage to sin. So imagine you're a Hebrew slave. You and your people leave the land of oppression. You step out into this new future with big faith, But when you left, you didn't really know it was going to take 40 years to get there. You thought, oh, it's not that far. A few weeks with this many people. You didn't know you were signing up for a four-decade journey. I mean, 400 years of slavery was bad enough, but now the real journey begins because it's not just about getting from point A to point B. It's about the transformative work that God has to do in the hearts of the slaves of Egypt to transform them into the children of of God. And that 40-year journey will not be pleasant. In fact, part of the cost of that transformation is that an entire generation has to die before the latent potential within these people in the next generation can be realized. Now think about all you've witnessed. Maybe you're just a child when they leave Egypt. You've seen the ten plagues of Egypt. You've seen God show up powerfully and reveal to the Pharaoh of Egypt that they thought was a God. He has no power at all. You see the sea open up in front of you as you walk on dry ground and escape the ensuing Egyptian army coming to reclaim you. You, come, you get to the other side with you and your family and the water swallows up that army and kills them. 
You witness God's presence at Mount Sinai, that thick cloud descending. You hear audibly his voice speak in the cloud after the giving of the Ten Commandments. You follow Moses forward to claim the promised land. You witness God provide the food and water, the sustenance you need in the wilderness for four decades. Your very life depended on the faithfulness of God every single day for nourishment. And he showed that he is true and faithful. You were present when Joshua the student took over as leader, received the baton of leadership for the aging Moses. You and, and the, the, the collective nation of Israel entered into the uncertainty. I mean, these are big, big sandals to step into. And yet you followed Joshua's lead into the rushing waters of the Jordan River, watching God miraculously hold back the waters as you walked across again on dry ground. On the other side, you helped construct a 12-stone altar as a sign of remembrance of the faithfulness of God, the one true God of the world. You followed Joshua forward to the city of Jericho. You heard this crazy idea that God had given Joshua of how he would deliver the city into your hands. And so you walk around for seven days carrying your horn. Then finally on the seventh day, you witness something incredible as they shout. And all of a sudden at that shout, the power and majesty of the one true God shows up. And the whole nation of Israel, after obeying every step God called them to obey, all of a sudden the walls start to shake, rattle, and roll, and they come tumbling down. You saw nation after nation after nation miraculously fall into the hands of God. Not into your hands because your military was so great. I mean, you were homeless nomads. And God gave you what you could not earn. And in addition to all of this, at one moment you actually stand and see the sun stand still. And time as a whole literally stop moving. And then you heard, as you stood and listened to the leaders begin to divide up the promised land God had handed you that you didn't earn. Twelve tribes spread out over twelve regions, and this family takes this region, and this family takes this one, and this one takes another. And you move into towns you didn't build, into houses that you didn't harvest the lumber from. You move into vineyards that have already been planted, that you didn't have to tend to. You have picnics under olive trees that you didn't plant. And there you live for 25 years, 25 good years of putting down roots in this God-given promised land, 25 good years of having kids and watching them grow and watching them get married and start their own lives and their own families. And now you're getting to a point in your life where you have to get up three times at night to pee. And you find yourself nodding off every afternoon at two o'clock looking for discounts on when you can go to dinner at four and save money at a diner. The amount of time that has passed between Joshua taking over for Moses as leader and his final act as leader is around three decades, just three short decades, and 25 of those years is spent in the promised land. Now, for those of you that consider yourself young, think about how long 25 years is. For some of you here, that's pretty much your whole life. You maybe don't have any firsthand memories that are older than that, maybe not even that many. Others of us can think back to firsthand memories. I mean, there's probably... There's no joking, at least one guy here that's wearing a shirt they were wearing 25 years ago. Because many of us guys, we don't get rid of clothing that often unless it's like completely tattered and shot. Because we always have a purpose for it. But I don't want to make you feel old. 25 years ago, it was 1996. Okay? Now, let me give you a little bit of perspective on what's happened in 25 years. Okay? In 1996, Harry Potter didn't exist. Think about that. The books came out in 97. The Spice Girls are the biggest music act in the world. At this point, Will Smith is only known as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. They don't know him as anything else. He's a TV star. It's in the summer of 96 on July 4th weekend, Independence Day comes out. 
At Christmas in 1996, it is almost impossible to find a $30 Tickle Me Elmo. And it's causing fist fights in Toys R Us's. And all of a sudden, people realize something brand new, this new invention called the internet, where you can buy a $30 toy and turn around and sell it to some person in some other part of the world for up to $1,500. And I just learned on Friday, uh, my garage door burned out, the motherboard fried, and it was manufactured in 1996, which I thought was kind of funny, 25 years ago. So today, I'm putting in a new garage opener. Anyways, at the end of the book of Joshua, 25 good years has passed in the promised land. Now, do the math with me. Over 400 years of slavery, 40 years wandering the wilderness, seven years watching Joshua lead you to victory after victory after victory over foreign nation, and now almost 500 years, and then 25 years of living there, almost 500 years of, of turmoil filled with uncertainty, not knowing what tomorrow held, going from being slaves in Egypt to then being nomadic, homeless people for, for decades and then finally getting to move into some place and build a life for yourself in some, in some place you didn't build, that you didn't make, you didn't construct, it, reaping the benefits of the fruit and, and, and vegetables and, and, and harvest of the land that, that you didn't uh, produce, that you didn't invest in. But one of the most heartbreaking things that's happened is in 25 years of plenty, Guess how far the Israelites have drifted in their worship and in their obedience to God. See, when the Israelites settled into this promised land, not everyone around them died. In fact, in the land of the Amorites, they kind of moved into, they were next door neighbors. Over the course of that 25 years, the people of God began to forget the God who gave them so much, who rescued them from uncertainty. Some of the Hebrews began to fill their shelves at home with little wooden and stone idols representing the gods of their neighbors. And out of fear, oftentimes, they began to honor and worship these little figurines, wondering if they had some power that they had to be conscious of and that the Jews wanted to tap into. Others that had moved into the promised land began to adopt some of the, 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 the philosophical or religious rituals from that of Egypt. After all, they spent so long there, and so they carried forward some of those false ideas and false theologies and, and allowed it to compromise their doctrine and understanding of who God was declaring he was in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy through Moses, and who they'd seen him show up to be in the time of, of Joshua's leadership. Yet still other Hebrews chose to reach back even further to the, to the land that Abram came from, their forefather, and began to adopt some of the religious philosophies or spiritual ideas of that ancient land. I mean, a people that have been given so much after so much uncertainty, not only the promised land, but they were eyewitnesses to the awesome power of the hand of God in front of them. And in just 25 short years, their hearts have drifted so far from him. So Joshua sees this as an opportunity to deliver a challenge. Joshua is nearing his death now, but before he dies, he wants to draw attention and kind of point them back, his brothers and sisters, back to where they came from because he's seen this drift over the last two and a half decades he wants to draw attention to the continued faithfulness of God all the while the people he has saved have been unfaithful towards God. And so in Joshua 24, turn there with me if you want. We'll, we'll put the scripture on screen. But we have this record of Joshua standing and reminding the Israelites of everything God had done for them and with them to reveal who he is. Remember, the reason that God acts, the reason Jesus performs miracles is so we can see who God is, we can see what his heart is like, what matters to him. 
so we can understand and discover who God is by what he does. So Joshua wants to remind the people who God is by telling them some of their story and bringing it back to the surface of their minds. And and he delivers in Joshua 24 really a get-off-the-fence challenge to the people. In uncertain times, get off the fence. Have you ever been guilty of sitting on the fence, maybe over the last year, and all the uncertainty? Right? It's easy to kind of, early on especially, it's understandable to say, well, I don't want to take sides. I don't know what's right or what's wrong. I don't know how deadly COVID could be. I, I want to be safe, not sorry. Sometimes we get on the fence because we just don't want to be wrong. We want to be in the wrong crowd. Sometimes there's an outcome hanging that's not that big of a deal to us. So we don't speak up. Like today after lunch, if somebody in your family says, what do you guys want to do? You want to do McDonald's or Burger King? You're just like, eh. They're both garbage. I don't care. You know, you don't have any. But then somebody's like, what if, what if we do five guys? Okay, if I'm in that circle, I'm speaking up. Fresh cut fries, I'm in. It's like, you, you mentioned that. We're making the trek to wherever we need to go in any direction. It's worth it to not be stuck with frozen fries. I mean, sometimes we don't care what decision is made, and so we sit on the fence, and we choose not to get involved. You ever sat on the fence? I mean, Joshua looks around, and he says, hey, there's a lot of fence sitters in this day and age. They're coasting. They're comfortable. They're wealthy. They've been given a lot. And so he delivers an all-in challenge to the people. Are you all in for the God who rescued you? Or have you forgotten where you've come from and what he's done? They're in a situation where they have what they need. They're self-sufficient. They're in control. Things aren't quite as uncertain as they once were. But what they don't understand is the more they drift Away from God, the more they drift into more uncertainty. Because as they allow other priorities to become preeminent in their lives, number one, God's favor doesn't continue in the same way. And they become susceptible to a cursed, sinful, broken world as it affects them and their lives. They're in a situation where they have what they need and they're self-sufficient. But that can be a dangerous place to spend too much time in. And so what does Joshua do? He calls together a leadership summit of sorts. And he says something to the leaders gathered there to call them back as the leaders with influence to lead the nation back in this direction. He tells them the story of who God is. That's the earlier parts of what comes before this. And that was my purpose, kind of walking you through from Exodus to Joshua so we had a fresh idea of the story of the the nation of, of Israel and the Hebrew people. And he recaps that for them leading up to verse 13. But this is what he says, and he summarizes, I gave you a land you had never farmed. I gave you cities you had not built. You are now living in them. You are eating the fruit of the vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. So have respect for the Lord. Serve him. Be completely faithful to him. Throw away the gods your people worshipped eat of east of the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. But suppose you don't want to serve him, then choose for yourselves right now whom you will serve. You can choose the gods your people served east of the Euphrates. You can choose the gods of the Amorites served, those who are our neighbors now. After all, you are living in their land. But Joshua says, choose this day who you're going to follow. Stop sitting on the fence. Quit trying to satisfy God while also satisfying your own desires and dreams and your own fears and these other idols that you're chasing. And stop trying to get other people to like you. Stop allowing your emotions and feelings about the current day and age to overwhelm your reason and instead move forward with sound doctrine about God, about who he is. 
and yield yourself to what he says is right and what he says is wrong. You may not like it, but you're not God. You don't get to say what's right and wrong. He does. Quit sitting on the fence. Move forward with doctrine sound about God, about who he is, about what he's done, and about who we are. And move forward in obedience to him. Be all in for the one who's rescued you. Be all in for Christ. Or choose to be all in with the world's way. Pick a side. That's really what Joshua's saying. But stop trying to treat your faith like a buffet. I'll do a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the Holy Spirit, a little bit of God the Father, his love and his acceptance of me. But I don't want any of that, like, morality that he says is right. I don't like that. That doesn't make me feel good. And So I want a little bit of this sprinkled in. I want a little bit of this. And a little bit of that. So I'll do a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of, a little bit of this ancient thing, and a little bit of this you know, uh, other more recent thing, this new age thing, or a little bit of the secret and this idea of positive thinking, get me everything I want. Joshua's saying, remember what you've seen take place with your own eyes. The testimonies of your parents and what they witnessed. The undeniable power of God. And make a decision. Choose. No more a little bit of this and this is a neat idea and I hope this is true and I dream about this. Because if you do that, what you're doing is you're creating in your mind a recipe for disaster. You're trying to fashion a God that you can understand, that makes sense to you, that's attractive to you. That God is not holy. That God is not superior in power. That God doesn't even exist because it's in your own mind. And he won't be perfect because he's made from an imperfect, biased mind. The one true God is who he is. And he is who he is according to how he's chosen to reveal himself to us. Not how we think or hope or wish he might be. Joshua stands and declares to the leaders, choose today. Whether things in your life are certain or uncertain, get off the fence and choose. Because as certain as they are today, in five minutes they could be uncertain again. Some of you are here today, you need to stand and choose. Maybe you never have, maybe you did a long time ago. But like the Israelites, you've drifted You need to remember the moments in your life when God's beauty was revealed, when his power was on display. You need to tell yourself your own story, the moments when he spoke to you, the moments when his calling came upon you, the moments where where the Holy Spirit made himself known to you in, in reality. I mean, there's some of us, maybe today, in this room or across that screen, today is decision time. You need to get off the fence and you need to declare that God is God according to the way he's revealed himself to be in his word, what we know is the Bible. Some of us allow feel-good philosophies to enter our minds and corrupt the authority of the Word of God. So, well, does it really say that? Does it really say that? Is that what it really means? It's interesting. That, doesn't that sound a lot like Satan's ploy with Adam and Eve in the garden? Is that what God really said? Today might be decision time. We can begin to believe lies about the God of creation, the God who sent his son to lay his life down on the cross to save us. And we can fashion out of those ideas or philosophies an idol. And it's not a little wooden or stone figurine we put on a shelf. It's something we hold in our minds. But it begins to pervert our understanding and our faith in who God is. And it's not the one true unblemished God. Normally the reason why we take a little of one religion, a little of another, a little of a spiritual philosophy, and we kind of mesh them all together is sometimes subconsciously even we're afraid that, well, what if we're wrong about Jesus? We need to hedge our bets. We need to try to, whatever that energy is out there that's God, we've got to make sure that he's happy with us. And we fall back into a salvation by works mentality that is defined by what I do. Well, if there is a God of the Amorites, I don't want to make her mad at me, so I better put this figurine on my shelf. It can be as simple as that in what begins to be the the, the tool the enemy uses to pervert our theology. 
What Joshua's saying is, guys, gals, you're crazy. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has freed you from slavery. Nobody else did that. He adopted you as his people. Nobody else did that. He protected, he protected you. He provided for your ancestors. He brought entire nations and kings to their knees in front of you when they shouldn't have ever done that in miraculous ways. You waltzed into this land free to enjoy all the good things planted by farmers and owners that, that you didn't have to. God did all of this for you to show you who he is. And then we get into the New Testament, into the time of Jesus, and the bar's raised even higher in how we understand God. It's not just about all the material things he's provided for us. When Jesus arrives, we see God as a self-sacrificing Savior, that he comes and lays down his life in my place, that he offers us grace when we should be given condemnation. That in the midst of our spirit of rebellion and sin, when we wanted nothing to do with him, he wanted everything to do with us. And that he wants a relationship with us restored where we can actually hear his voice as a sheep with a shepherd, guiding us, directing us, comforting us, convicting us, correcting us. Joshua's saying you either believe in God and God alone or you don't, but get off the fence and make the decision today. This day was similar in concept to what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Generations later, Peter would stand publicly and declare that the Jews had missed it. That they were so much anticipating the, the Messiah to come that they had fashioned in their own minds what the Messiah would look like and what he would accomplish. And it wasn't anything according to what God actually wanted to do. That they just crucified the Son of God. But because of who God is, because he is love and he is grace, he laid down his life so that they could be redeemed. And then he resurrected his son, passing on the blessing of that resurrection to them. And then Jesus appeared to hundreds, proving that this resurrection was true. And this was just a few weeks after it all happened. This isn't hundreds of years later. This is weeks after so many that were there had witnessed the very thing take place. I mean, Peter, in essence, says on Pentecost, he's like, hey, just down the road over there, you saw Jesus heal the blind. You were there when, when sick people came and, 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 and lepers, and he touched them. And, and normally, the person that touches the leper gets infected, but his perfection actually healed them and cleansed them of their leprosy. I mean, around the corner from here, you, you heard the Pharisees under the cover of night wrongly accuse and convict Jesus, but you all saw Jesus did nothing wrong. I mean, right over there in that courtyard, that's where they scourged him. You saw him get that beating. Right up on that hill there is Calvary. That's where he was crucified. You saw him die. And on that day when he died, you saw the sky turn dark. You felt the earth shake. And you've heard the stories, many of you, you've been in the temple. You've seen the veil torn from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last. The Jews didn't do that. They didn't want to desecrate the holiest place on earth. That happened when Jesus breathed his last and God the Father tore it from the top down, unleashing his presence on the rest of the world. And now you no longer have to go to one place to find the holiness of God, but every place on this planet is now consumed by the holiness of God. He's accessible and what you see today on Pentecost, his Holy Spirit is now immediately available to us if you confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, come in and make you new. And hundreds of us here, we were with him after he rose from the grave. We saw him. Death couldn't stop him. The grave couldn't hold him and hell couldn't keep him. But he came back. He's risen. He's risen today. And that resurrection can pass to you. He's ready and willing to forgive you of your sins and accomplish everything needed for your salvation. Peter basically steals Joshua's challenge. He says, choose this day who you will follow. Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. Peter says, choose this day who you will follow. Get off the fence. 
take a side, go all in, or, or just go home. Stop playing games. I think it's true that in uncertain times, we have a tendency to look at circumstances happening to us, what we feel, what we want, and we start to wonder, well, well is that really what God said? We start to wonder, well, where's God if this is how I feel? feel? What's God up to in this? We start to question his timing. We question his plan. We question his word. And oftentimes those questions lead to confusion. And what happens is we begin to withdraw from God as he's revealed himself in scripture. We can quickly forget that Jesus promised us trials and struggles in this world. We've talked about that the last two weeks in this series. It's kind of the essence of this idea, uncertain times. There will be times of trial and struggle, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Believe in me. There will be times of trial and struggle and that in the midst of the pain-filled journey through this world to remember he overcame. And, and because he overcame, he makes possible to us peace, hope, purpose, healing, perseverance, self-control. Everything we need to navigate the uncertain times, God in his kindness and faithfulness, he already thought about. And he makes accessible to us through his Holy Spirit what we need. But we see this theme again in the last book of the Bible. The last book written down is the Apostle John is old and gray, right? He's, he's at that point in his life where every time he's, he bends down to tie off his sandals, he's grunting and wheezing and hair coming out of his ears and his nose, you know. God leads John in Revelation. Some of you are laughing because you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm married to that, right? Um, God leads John in, in Revelation to write seven letters to seven actual churches in the world at that time. And, uh, and one of those churches he writes to is the church in Laodicea. Powerful, powerful moment in Revelation chapter 3. Laodicea, Laodicea was a, a financially wealthy city compared to rest, the rest of the known world. And as a result of their wealth, it gave them the opportunity to do something. Most cities that weren't located near a main water source wouldn't even begin to dream of doing. They were able to build an aqueduct that brought fresh water from a neighboring city. But this also presented a problem. Because see, water, when it was first coming up from the ground, is either coming up ice cold because it's from deep in the earth, or it's being pushed out by hot springs, and so it's very, very hot. But after you put it in an aqueduct and it gets sent you know, miles to the neighboring city, all of a sudden it becomes lukewarm, whether it was cold or hot to begin with in that climate. And it's not nearly as beneficial for use. Now with that in mind, here's a familiar text many of us would know by heart in Revelation 3. But in that context, this is the church he's writing to, the church in Laodicea with all of their wealth that has an aqueduct to get them fresh water, knowing that when they get it, it's not cold or hot, it's warm. And this is what, this is what God says to John to write to the church in Laodicea. Here's what he says in verse 14. Here are the words of the one who is the Amen. Love the way that the New International uh, um, uh, Reader's Version has this. It's kind of told more in a story form. Here are the words of the one who is the amen, first and last. What he gives witness to is faithful and true. He rules over what God has created. He says, I know what you're doing. I know you aren't hot or cold. You're sitting on the fence. I wish you were either one or the other, but you are lukewarm. You aren't hot or cold, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I don't, I don't really need anything. But you don't realize how pitiful and miserable you've become. You're poor, blind, and naked. In this verse, God is telling us that sometimes we look at our lives and we're, we think things are certain and we don't even really see who we are. And we don't see how desperate we are for the next breath if God doesn't give it to us. 
I'm rich. I've got wealthy. I've got everything I need. I've got a refrigerator of food. I've got a cabinet of food. I've got emergency bins and boxes and buckets of food in my basement in case everything goes crazy tomorrow. But you don't realize how pitiful and miserable you've become. You're poor, blind, and naked. So here's my advice. Buy from me gold made by fire, pure by fire. Then you'll become rich. Buy from me white clothes to wear. Then you'll be able to cover your shameful nakedness. And buy from me healing lotion to put on your eyes. Then you'll be able to see. God's saying, you, you can't find what I have to offer in this world. It's altogether separate. Everything in this world that's offered is temporary. It'll burn. It won't last. You can't bank on it. What I have to offer can never be compromised. Verse 19, he says, I correct and train those I love. I correct and train those I love. We understand that from the perspective of a parent, but sometimes we don't like to acknowledge that in relationship to God. Oh, he loves us and he's, he's permissive of us. He gives us freedom and liberty. Here he says, I correct and train those I love. Sometimes that's unpleasant, right? Wasn't he also correcting and training the Israelites as they left Egypt and it took 40 years of correction and training? So be sincere and turn away from your sins. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If any of you hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with you and you will eat with me. Now here's one of the powerful things we don't often think about about Revelation 3. John is writing this to the church in Laodicea, a church that existed. And at the end of this, we often think this verse, this is a salvation verse. This is an evangelism verse. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. Anyone hears my voice and lets me in, I'll come in and make myself at home. And I'll eat with you and there'll be fellowship. This is an evangelism verse written to a church body in Laodicea. God is in essence saying, there's some of you going through the motions. You're on the fence. You don't have a relationship with me. You have not been saved through faith. You're trying to work it off. Or you're taking this little thing about Jesus that you like, but you're adding it to this and to this and to this and to this. And you got this buffet that represents your doctrine. And it's not about me. And I will not accept compromise. Here's the simple point of the message today. God doesn't do well with fence sitters. He doesn't do tepid. He, he never has and he never will. He didn't send his son to die so we could say a few words in a prayer and step across the line and be saved and then do whatever we want to do and not go any further. To be a disciple means that we're increasingly surrendering areas of our lives we have not yet surrendered or we're surrendering again because we keep taking it back to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every single area over a lifetime. We don't do all this at once. This is the process of discipleship. And that means that God has a next piece of your life that he's calling you to release to him right now in this season. That means all of us in this room have a next step in our journey with God. I don't know what that is for you because I'm not God. But because he's faithful, like we talked about last week, if we open his word and we seek him, he'll make it clear. What's the next step he has for us to trust him with? Let me point out some applications for you today. Maybe you know God has been laying something on your heart for a while. And if you're honest with yourself and with him, you don't need anybody else to be involved in that conversation, but you're like, I know I've been pushing you away, God. I know this is what you're calling me to. I know this is a step of obedience or faith you're calling me to, and I just kind of keep pushing it further down further down the line, hoping to do it later in life because I want to hold on to my control over this. Or, or maybe you've been trying to ignore it, like I'm just going to ignore that God's saying that, and maybe it'll eventually go away. It won't. Uh, maybe it's, it's something that you know, you've tried and you've kind of taken it back and then you've given it and you've taken it back. Today I want to encourage you to surrender again. To say, I give up. You know, when we say, I give up to God, 
This idea of surrender, putting our hands up, means the first thing, right? If, 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 if the police show up to a shady situation and you look like you might be somebody that's a part of shady things, what are they going to say? Put your hands up. Let me see what you got in your hands. That's surrender, right? God says, surrender. Put your hands up. I give up. When we say it to God, it means we're agreeing with what he has to say about something, and we want to live in obedience to it. Like, okay, I give up. I agree with what you have to say, and I want to live in obedience to it. I give up. I was talking to somebody a few months ago that knew God was calling them uh, to start tithing for the first time consistently in their life. They tried to be generous, uh, and when they, when they had attended worship gatherings and they wanted to, to financially invest in the ministry of, of the church because they believed in it and they were benefiting from it. But, but he was just honest with me. He's like, but when we're not there, we, we don't give. You know, We just give when we're there. and Almost like it's kind of paying for a ticket in a sense. But then as he began to walk with Jesus, nobody else had to tell him. The Holy Spirit began to show him that his perspective was not complete, that he was missing something. In time, he began to realize that the first tithe the first portion of everything of his inc- increase, his income didn't belong to him, it belonged to God. And he started to feel conviction. He was stealing from God because it wasn't his. This isn't so much about giving as much as it is bringing as a manager what belongs to God. So with more urgency, he decided to say, okay, I give up Jesus. I agree with what you say. I'm going to be obedient to it. And obedient to what you say in Matthew 23, 23. And in that verse is where Jesus basically says, hey, you should tithe, but you should also not neglect uh, the other elements of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow God. And he said the first time he went online and decided to tithe, it was a little nerve-wracking. This was just about a little over a year ago. It was a little nerve-wracking. And, and you know, he said it was one thing to give that much once because he wanted to. It was another thing to say, okay, I'm doing this consistently every time, every two weeks when I get paid. And that's a big deal. That's a big battle. It's a battle in your heart for who is Lord, who gets the first. And then he said as soon as he hit submit online... His heart was filled with joy, which I thought was an interesting way. He didn't even realize what he was saying. He was quoting the truth of Scripture. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. And from that moment forward, he said, I don't even miss it. It, just be, it, it even is still to this day a joy every two weeks. And he testified as well that in the, in the wake of making that decision, he doesn't even understand it, but, but his family's in a better place than they've ever been before. And he can't even make sense of it and can't even explain it. If you sat down with the math, he can't explain it how it's happened, except to say that God is blessing them abundantly. Now, if that's your goal in doing it, it's probably not going to deliver that way because you're trying to get something from God. For him, it was beginning to realize this doesn't belong to me. This is yours, God. I'm going to trust you. He believed in Jesus as his Savior before that. This was just a next step. He got off the fence in one area of his life, and he's experienced greater freedom and greater joy and a deeper heart connection with his Heavenly Father that he is not willing to walk away from now. It's awesome testimony. Maybe that's your step. Maybe it's not. Just because I'm telling you this story, it's not to try to, oh, here you go. He's talking about money. He's trying to convince us. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm giving you illustrations. I'm giving you ideas that maybe this is something God is moving you towards. Maybe during this past year of COVID, maybe you've gotten out of the intentional habit of regular worship gatherings. After all, there's been very legitimate reasons to do so. I was just talking with somebody this morning already about that and kind of seeing their life drift. And, and now they're at a place saying, I, don't, I know where that drift leads. I don't want to go there again. I was there, and it took a long time to break free from that. I'm not going to go there again. There's a lot of excuses we could use of why that happened. Some are legitimate. Some are selfish. Maybe God is speaking to your heart about, you know what, get off the fence. Reclaim your priorities. Make it a priority to gather with your family in the presence of God, with the family of God. Maybe you live somewhat close and... Uh, and you've been a part of Fusion at home for a while now, maybe months, maybe for years. And God is calling you to kind of step out of anonymity 
those of you that are online, and come and join us in person. Maybe God's been laying that on your heart for a while. Now's the perfect opportunity to do it with drive-in services starting at 1030. Just to let us know you exist. To let us know you're a part of this family. Because God has confirmed it. That you are a part of the Fusion at Home family. Maybe for anybody here, for anybody online, it's just checking in for the first time. Just be, having the courage to share your email address with us at Fusion to admit you are a part of the family. We, we want to know you. We want to know your name. We want to start to know your story. We also want to serve you as the body, and there's only so much we can do without the means to communicate directly. Maybe God's calling you to a more direct relationship with other believers in this journey. God wants you to say, okay, yes, I give up. I'm, I'm going to become a part of a disciple maker group. You keep talking about it, God. You keep moving my heart towards it. I'm seeing how desperate I am individually, and I need to, in person or virtually, set a time in my schedule as a new priority to walk with the Holy Spirit in community, to hear God speak to me through others, and also witness God speak through me to brothers or sisters in Christ. Maybe God's calling you to be more open about your faith and what you believe at work or at school and not live in fear. And not to do it in a creepy or weird way where they're like, man, stay away from them. I don't know what, what happened, but you don't want it to happen to you. But maybe God just wants you to stop, slow down, and listen more to the people around you. And look for those you can care enough for to say, hey, I see you, I hear you, I love you, I care about you, and I want to pray for you because I believe my, I know my Savior, He cares about what you're going through and He wants to help you through it. Maybe God has a specific area for you to serve in where your gifts and abilities and passions can be immediately benef beneficial to someone else. And that could be out in our greater community. There's so many ways to serve as followers of Jesus to get on our knees and wash the feet of others outside of this place and outside of Sunday mornings. And I would first encourage you, find those places to plug into and make a difference in the lives of people and see the doors that God opens. Or maybe God is calling you to step up and serve within the church body too. Like offering to serve once a month in our Tiny Steps ministry so it can kick off again. So those with younger kids that, that would love to be here but are continuing to remain virtual could be here every week. In uncertain times, the temptation is to sit on the fence and be indecisive. Choose this day who you will surrender to. Choose this day who you will follow. Choose this day who you will serve. Joshua stepped forward and challenged the Israelites, get off the fence. Who you follow, who you serve, who you believe. And the Bible says on that day, Joshua made this statement. And after this statement, a revival took place that lasted for two generations. Continuing on in Joshua 24, where we began, this is what he says. Choose this day who you will serve, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered Joshua. They said, we would never desert the Lord. We would never serve other gods. The Lord our God himself brought us and our parents up out of Egypt. He brought us out of the land where we were slaves. With our own eyes, we saw those great and miraculous signs he did. He kept us safe on our entire journey. He kept us safe as we traveled through all of the nations. He drove them out to make room for us. That included the Amorites. They also lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord. That's because he is our God. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourself. You have said that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the gods that are among you. People from other lands serve those gods. Give yourselves completely, get off the fence, to the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the people spoke to Joshua. They said, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him. Lord Jesus, obedience is hard, and faith is hard in uncertain times. When we see things going on in our immediate circle and in the world at large that we can't understand, 
and we don't know why. So often we can be paralyzed and it can just be more comfortable to sit on a fence, to be indecisive and just wait it out. But for those of us who have been redeemed, children of God, not so with us. We're called to obey. We're called to steps of faith. We're called to increasingly surrender and say, yes, I give up, God. I agree with you, and I'm going to be obedient. I agree with you, and I'm going to be obedient. Lord, what is that area you're calling us each in our own season to say, I give up. I agree with you, and I'm going to be obedient. I don't want my life to drift anymore. I don't want to accept second best when I've been promised the absolute best, the best life I can experience, the more abundant life that you offer Jesus. But I agree with you. It can only be found in you. And so show me what the next step of obedience is for me, Lord. And for each of my brothers and sisters who can hear my voice today, in your holy name we pray. Amen.